From the Duck South Studios in Oxford, Mississippi. We're mass communicating. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for them. This is the End of the Line Podcast, powered by DuckSouth.com. I give it a, uh, a 10. A 10. Sweep the leg. You have a problem with that. And now, here's your host, Rocky LaFleur. I bet you slice into the woods a hundred bucks. Gambling is illegal at Bushwood, sir, and I never slice. Also starring Josh Webb, Jake LaTondras, Rob Kroon, David Ellis, and Ramsey Russell. Showtime. All right, here we go. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. Showtime, everybody! Showtime! Welcome to the End of the Line podcast. I'm Rocky LaFleur in the Ducks House Studios in Oxford, Mississippi. Joining me on the other end of the line for another edition of Ramsey Russell Worldwide. Mr. Double R to himself. Ramsey, how are you? Man, I'm doing good, Rocky. I'm 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 not lying, man. We got we got season opening finally down south in a few days. All my decor is sorted, and uh, man, I'm I'm just ready. I'm I'm here. I'm happy, and uh, man, I'm gonna tell you what. The next several podcasts uh, are something I think everybody's gonna appreciate. I mean, it, because you know, uh, I got invited several weeks ago, as many people know uh to go to utah to duck hunt i got invited by a client to come to his private camp that i knew nothing about except it was his private camp to come duck hunting for a few days well i knew a lot of guys out in utah and i'd been invited you know like back in the summertime when the swan draw was up several friends had had messaged me and said hey the swan application's open try to get drawn come up here and hunt with us blah 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 and i always wanted to hunt up there just i knew they're great duck hunting that's it um but rocky I had absolutely, positively, no idea, none whatsoever, what I was getting into. I had no idea. I, I just, I'm going duck hunting, you know, and uh, started off at a very uh, old, venerable, historic camp that was founded in 1910. Um. And I had I had figured when I go up there I was going to hunt and well if I'm going to be up there if I'm going to spend 450 bucks on a plane ticket I might as well instead of being for three days with this guy I'll, I'll jump in with his other buddies so I, and see more country and then I'll jump in with another guy and see more country and it turned into about a nine or ten day odyssey so unworldly to, to what I had expected in terms of history in terms of uh, conservation value, in terms of ecological significance. I mean, I, honestly, it was a, it was almost, it was hitting me with so many different directions, it, it overwhelmed me. Now, let me, let, me, let me tell you where we're going with this. It's so funny how things are related that, that, that don't relate. Now, I'm a duck hunter, so, you know, it's funny how, things are related back to duck hunting like how many times uh surely the guys flipping through the history channel or whatever on a late night you know you have seen the story of uh those two railroads getting a government contract one out west one out east and building track one to one to the west and one to the east towards each other 
to build the transcontinental railroad system. I mean, you know, it, I dang it opened up the American West. It conquered. The, I mean, man, no more of this uh, months-long journey and covered wagons and Indians and all that mess to get from the East Coast to the West. We had a train system now, and it transformed the country. And what I didn't ever pay close enough attention to was that those two trains joined at a place called Promontory Summit, Utah. And even if I had, had I not gone to Utah, I wouldn't have understood the significance of what those two rails joining in Utah meant because of when it happened and where it happened to what we now perceive as the recreational sport of duck hunting. When you think market hunting, what's the first thing come to mind? Chesapeake Bay. You know, or, or, or maybe down sunken lands uh, just outside of Memphis. Maybe south Louisiana out of Port of New Orleans. Market hunting. Uh-uh. No, 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 man. This, this region, the Bear River Valley, uh, on the north side of the Great Salt Lakes and the Great Salt Lakes themselves were perceived as a Valhalla. In the late 1800s, the, the, the hunters of America that personally witnessed the flights of canvasbacks on Susquehanna Flats and... Uh, down at the, the, the guys that were shooting a couple of hundred ducks, uh, tree-topping them down in Sunken Lands, uh, uh, Arkansas, and the guys that saw passenger pigeons, they described this part of the world as the Valhalla. They said when those ducks would get up, it sounded like six locomotives coming down the train at one time. And they ate ducks. And when duck season came in, you couldn't sell a chicken in the Great Salt Lake Valley. And right about this whole time that them two railroads joined up, ushered in the era where you had hunters that went out hunting for the pot, hunters that went out and, and market hunted to feed the market for the guys that didn't really go out and hunt. And that exact same time in American history, because now Valhalla was accessible, it ushered in the sport hunter. It, it, it ushered in the era of recreational duck hunting. And I'm not going to give all these five stories away. you got to listen to them because coming up um, is a man named Jessup Bowden, a young man from named Jessup Bowden, a hunter himself we just talked about. He's now a Ducks Unlimited representative. What you've got to understand is that, that you're, Utah is a high desert. Eighty percent of the wetlands right there in that Great Salt Lake Basin. A lot of freshwater marshes, a lot of river systems, a lot of drainages coming in, a lot of demand for water with industry, with civilization, with, with humanity. With, with upstate Idaho, folks need water out west. There's a lot of competing uses for water. A lot of it's already gone. 30% or so of it's already gone. And And what I really didn't appreciate or realize is not only um, is that basin very, very uh, important from a productive standpoint. Most of the cinnamon till in the Pacific Flyway, most of the gadwall in the Pacific Flyway, a lot of green wings, a lot of Canada geese, a lot of, a lot of different birds, but it's also a, a vital staging area for waterfowl 
that 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 you know that affects all 11 states of the Pacific Flyway. And just pursuant to my three days hunting there with uh, my guest, he had showed me some literature, and I decided one of the first people I wanted to interview about this region was Jessup. I, I wanted to get I, I wanted to get the issues. I wanted to hear them discussed, all these issues and what can be done and what is being done by, by not just Ducks Unlimited, but many, many, many stakeholders in that region. Uh, next week, we're going to talk to my buddy Chad Yamani, a firefighter, but he's also a duck guy. He specializes in swans. Jump off into airboat. Whew. Man, we get way off into the boonies. Man, I mean, it's unbelievable. Then I'm gonna then I'm gonna I'm gonna fall in with a, another mutual acquaintance, a, a very prominent biologist. Grant, just wait till you hear some of the stuff going on. What he described. Just imagine this resource, 80% public land. The effort that goes into habitat management and hunter management and how they all get along. And again, some of the stakeholder and conservation issues. Then we're gonna jump in and meet with uh, my buddy Tony Smith. Talk about diving hunting, canvas bags are his, are his passion, and then we're going to wrap it up talking to a historian. And I promise y'all, after y'all hear these four pot, it's going to blow your mind to hear what this guy talks about the history of the Great Salt Lakes. And, and break, break. You know, uh, while I was out there visiting and talking, and my head was swimming, and man, we we actually went. We drove about 30 miles away from that duck camp to where uh, they laid that golden spike and put them two railroads together. I put a shiver up my spine because of how it impacted what I do today, what y'all do today. Something as simple as that. And it transformed. It put something into motion that today is recreational duck hunting. And, and all the history behind it, Rocky, it, it just, it, it's, a, it's a very, very exciting place. But, you know, while I was there and doing this, I became aware of a similar wetland up in Indiana called Kankakee Marsh. And I may, I may be saying that wrong, Kankakee Marsh. That hit, around this same time was described as the Everglades of the North. And if you look at the historical lake bed, marsh bed on a map, it, it covered a big old geography. It was a big, big, big wetland. And around the same time in that history, those guys figured out, hey, and there's a lot of pasture pigeons depending on that marsh and those woodlands around it. But they decided, you know, hey, man, this is some farm ground right here. Let's drain this son of a gun. And boy, they brought in the equipment. They drained it. That's now 1% the number of wetlands in Kankakee Marsh that there historically was, and biologists have said on record that the draining of that marsh precipitated the loss of 25% of migratory waterfowl in the United States of America. We lost, as a country, 25% the number of birds that used to migrate in America from the draining of that one wetland. So I just kind of put that in placeholder there, just in, and when you when you hear this talk about the Great Salt Lake, because out there in the middle, the centerpiece of the Great Salt Lake actually is a saline water body. 
but it's those marshes surrounding it that are so vital. Very, very, very interesting uh, podcast, and I think Jessup does a real good job. He's a hunter like the rest of us. Uh, he was a game warden down in Nevada. He grew up duck hunting uh, or wanted to duck hunt. His daddy wasn't a duck hunter but took him. And, uh, and he really does a good job explaining uh, the ecological significance of this wetland and just kind of giving it a good perspective that, that, that once we get immersed into it with these other, other guests, you, you'll, you'll, you'll have a whole new appreciation for that, for that wetland. Well, I know that the Great Salt Lake is a bucket list for a lot of people, so I look forward to it hearing this interview. It, it really you should be. I, it was a bucket list item for me, Rocky, but here, here, here's what I, I just can't get my mind wrapped around. See, <clears throat> you get up on a high point, and you look down, and you see forever. There, there's no pine trees. There's no oak trees. There's nothing that you can reconcile a Mississippi scale in terms of distance with. All you see is to the west, you see the Promontory Mountains. To the east, you see the Wasatch Mountains, boom, this valley right in between them. And what just blew my mind is here I am standing in waist-deep water, shooting canvasbacks and bluebills and uh, redheads, and looking to the west, I can say to myself, looking at my phone, 15 miles from here, I was standing in ankle-deep water, shooting green wing till and shovelers, and... 15 or 10 miles north of there, I was hunting in pools, shooting mallards and cinnamon teal and gadwalls, and five miles from there, I was in a cornfield shooting Canada geese. I, it, 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 it's, it's all right there in between those mountains, man, on the same water body. It, it's it's An amazing place. Amazing. An amazing, anyway. amazing place, but... Let's get to that interview with Jessup now. This is Ramsey Russell, GetDucks.com, where it's duck season somewhere. And today, I'm in the Great Basin of Utah. We've been hunting up here for about a week. Uh, right now, my buddy Travis is over there stringing together some duck poppers with jalapeno. We're going to grill steaks tonight. And I'm sitting down with Jessup Bowden. How are you, Jessup? Good, how are you? Jessup, just to, just to let people know kind of who you are, uh, what is your position? Who do you work for and what's your position? So I work for Ducks Unlimited in uh, Utah, and I do our major gift fundraising in Utah, Arizona, Nevada, and Southern California. So I work with any of our major donors. I help steward them along and connect their philanthropic interests with our mission. I take it you're a duck hunter? Oh, yeah. Started when I was 12 and hunted, started hunting in Utah and moved away for a little bit and came right back. So this, like is, this is your home. Utah is your home. It is. You grew up in Salt Lake City or... So I grew up just north of Salt Lake, about 30 miles north of Salt Lake, and grew up hunting all the wetlands on the eastern shore of the Great Salt Lake. Yeah, what an amazing wetland it is. You know, I've always heard the hunting was good here in Utah, but I, I really, until I stepped off into it, I had no idea what I was getting into. Who, who, did, you, uh, who did you start hunting with? So I started with my dad. So I grew up hunting big game with my dad from the time I was about two or three. Um, my dad had been a duck hunter before I was born a little bit as he grew up. My grandpa duck hunted before my time. He duck hunted and muskrat trapped a lot of the wetlands in Utah. Really? Really. And, uh, but they'd all stop by the time I was little. So I grew up hunting deer with them and elk and chasing big game. And in Utah, 
at the time, you couldn't hunt anything until you were 12, and you couldn't hunt big game until you were 14. Really? Yeah. So at 12, I went through hunter safety at 10 or 11. At 12, I could start hunting. Um, went hunting with grouse with Dad a little bit, and wasn't necessarily my thing. We went out on the youth hunt, and Dad hadn't hunted ducks in 15, 18, 20 years. It had been a long time. It was like pre-lead band days. And we hunted Farmington Bay. I had a shotgun, a 12-gauge shotgun, full size. I was 12 years old. That gun was way too big. Um, but, man, I, we didn't have waders. We didn't have any of the gear. But we went out, and Dad had promised me we were going to go for duck hunting. Is that because you'd been hounding him to go, or he I'd just been, felt obligated to take you? I'd been hounding him to go. I wanted to shoot ducks. I grew up hunting and grew up loving hunting, and I wanted to try it all. I wanted to do everything. And uh, at the time, my dad was going through some health issues, and I didn't know it at the time, but he wasn't feeling good, but he'd promised me at 12 that we were going to go chase ducks on that youth hunt. And he did. And he, we, we walked the dike, and I shot two boxes of shells, didn't kill one duck, but I fell in love with it that day. <laughs> Why? What, 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 what do you remember? You didn't shoot any duck, but what do you remember about that first duck hunt with your dad? I remember the sights, the smells, man. I remember watching the sky turn black when that first shot rang out that morning. The duck numbers were just incredible, and there was something special about that, and it was the smell of the smell of the shotgun after you'd shot. And oh, it was, yeah. It was the whole experience had me hooked. From the time, from that day, I was a duck hunter. And we went out and bought cheap waders that leaked, and I got decoys for Christmas, and that was how I started duck hunting. Well, your dad had obviously been a duck hunter in the past. Got out and did some big game hunting and stuff, and, and then your interest in it just drug him back into the fold. Mm-hmm. I can relate to the same thing. I had all but quit fishing when I had two little boys, and they loved to fish so bad I kind of got hooked back into it. You know, just something mm-hmm. to do. I've always said kids spell love, T-I-M-E. And and to get back into it with my kids was, was something. So that, that's kind of how your origins are mm-hmm. with your dad. It's, it's so true. And I've got two little boys now. i got a three- and five-year-old. And I started hunting with the five-year-old when he was two, and I've got video of him in a field blind in Nevada going out and retrieving ducks out of the field after I'd knocked them down. Wow. So, how long after that first hunt before you shot your first duck? It took me a whole year. I went through a case of ammo and a whole year. <laughs> I kid you not, I had bruises from my shoulder to my elbow most days. Your dad then, just let you shell out. Oh, dude, I just, I would go to town. Yep. And it was so much fun. And I was, my head wasn't on the stock of the shotgun, right? I know I was looking over the barrel and missing high and behind them, but it didn't matter. It was being out there. It was listening to the march wake up in the morning and it was watching the pintails circle and man i just i was hooked do you remember your first duck i do so it was the youth hunt the next year i was 13 and i knocked down two that day and as soon as you knocked down the first one my brain went oh i think i've got this figured out now and it could start figuring out how to lead and how to hold the gun better and i I got much better that second year, but yeah, that first year I went through a whole case of ammo and didn't knock down one more. What bird. was your first, what species was it? So it was a hen green wing tail, and I shot a green wing and a gadwall that day. I'll be dang. You know, I did not know uh, until I did a little research up here on the Great Salt Lakes that it was such a significant gadwall production area for the western U.S. I had no idea mm-hmm. whatsoever. This habitat is so unlike what we shoot gadwalls in back home. We shoot gadwalls everywhere back home in Mississippi. But Tupelo, Cypress, trees, things of that nature, they've just got this big thing for these old oxbow breaks. And this is anything but an oxbow break. It is not an oxbow break. It's 
open Sago Pondweed ponds and uh, Bulrush Flats, and then you've got the Great Salt Lake that has the brine shrimp as the primary food source. And yeah, we're we're a big production area for gadwalls. We're a big production area for cinnamon till. We're the main production area for cinnamon till in the nation. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I'd always thought it was Sacramento Valley, California. No, that's where they winter. They breed here, nest here, and then they'll go down into Mexico or over the mountain in the sack. Yes, sir. Well, uh, I've shot some redheads down, or we've shot some redheads down in Mexico that were banded, and they, a lot of them came from right here. In fact, all of them I've touched came from right here in the Great Salt Lake region. Yeah, we're a huge production area for redheads. We were bigger back in the pre-'80s. Before, the Great Salt Lake flooded in the 80s, and it was, most of the clubs had two feet of water in their clubhouses. And we were, the state was pumping water into the West Desert as fast as they could to try to keep that water from coming up in the Great Salt Lake. And uh, after that, man, it changed the habitat a lot here, and it changed our nesting birds a lot. We had one of the biggest colonies of overwater nesting mallards at the time, um, and we were a huge nesting area for redheads. And it's changed a little bit. We still have a lot of nesting redheads here, but not in the numbers we had before. Well, what what else has changed for this area since since you started hunting? How, how long ago was it, 20 years ago? Yeah, so I started hunting in 2002, so 17 years ago. Okay. Yeah, and what, what other changes have you seen in this area? So one of the biggest changes has been we've had a big problem with Phragmites. It's a non-native invasive reed. And after that flood, that flood, so the Great Salt Lake's all hyper saline water. It's super saline water. And when it flooded, it brought all that salt into our freshwater marshes and killed all the vegetation. Ah. And it... It took a long time for it to recover, but in that meantime, you had all that barren ground, and we have this Phragmites, and they're non-native, and I know other parts of the country have them too, but it took over and was so prolific and spread so fast. Um, So that's been a huge change and a huge problem. The state's spending half a million dollars a year on frag control alone on our public marshes. Holy cow. So, and it's... We're, We're making a dent, finally, but we spent a lot of years just chasing it, trying to get a hold of it, and it... I was telling you before we got on this, it's like I had a, I found a hunting hole when I was 16 and it was 50 yards wide and 60 yards long and man, I killed the ducks, especially on a day where it was a little overcast and got, got some wind, man, they would pile into this hole. And uh, so I found it in about 2006. By 2008, 2009, I hiked into that spot and couldn't even find my pond. The frag had choked it out to the point where that pond no longer existed. It was gone. Well, we, we stood in a clump of Phragmites today, and it's nasty, gnarly, bamboo-like stuff, and you got to be careful because it's thin, like a pencil, and if you're not careful, you, I can say poke my eye out with it, but, well, boy, it made a good duck blind. It makes a good duck blind, but that's about the only thing it does. Yeah, it's, I can uh, that. It doesn't provide any duck food. It provides a little bit of cover, but it big builds these big single stands of frag right nothing can grow in them nothing can compete with them it's got a big seed head on it that produces just thousands of seeds and then it's also it's rhizominous so it'll send shooters across the ground 30 40 just like bamboo just like bamboo and it's terrible and uh it's hard man we gotta put a lot of chemical on it i'm sure you're gonna talk to rich about it when you meet with rich oh yeah i I think i I think uh i think he's a i think i think he's think you got it in for Phragmite. Oh, yeah, that guy. Most biologists do around here. Mm-hmm. They spend a lot of time, effort, and energy trying to control that plant. Well, what what is the significance of this region, this 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 basin right here, 
kind of kind of come at it from this standpoint here of, of the the ecological or the waterfowl significance of this region because you know I'm from the deep south everybody knows about the Great Salt Lake you know learn about it in fourth grade or whatever but why is it such a crown jewel for waterfowl in the Pacific Flyway? It's a hub of the West. So a lot of the ducks that come out of the prairies, they'll nest up there, right? And they'll breed and they'll fledge out up there. And then they'll migrate this way and they're going to stop the Great Salt Lake to stage. So we're a huge staging area. And we actually peak out on our migration numbers in mid-September. So we have really? more ducks in mid-September than we have right now. I did not know that. But you produce birds. We produce birds. And I know there's a lot of Canada geese here, The uh, probably the westerns. There, there's uh, cinnamon teal, redheads. I'm sure y'all have some mallards and pintails and everything else. But but uh, it is a big staging area because of that rich food source. The brine mm-hmm. shrimp, the brine eggs, uh, some of the other food sources. That that it that's. But what what's going on? Uh, like I read the other day that 30 percent of Utah's wetlands have have or are, are more are gone. And, and and let me ask you this, let me ask you another question. So I'm asking you this one. Utah's a pretty big state. How much how much of this region right here in this valley constitute your total real wetlands? The vast majority of it, yeah. Most most of Utah's wetlands are centered around the Great Salt Lake. Yeah, a lot of our freshwater marshes on the eastern edge, and we have we've lost thirty percent of our historic wetlands. That's really not that much when you compare it to like California, that's lost ninety or ninety five percent of theirs. Wow. Um. So it's really we've lost wetlands, but our biggest threat we have a couple of big threats. One's the Phragmites. But another huge one is water. Water in the West is like gold, right? Like you guys, I know down south, oh, man, yeah. you guys don't have to worry about water, right? If it right. runs across your property, it's your water. You don't yeah. have a water right and a share. Here, you have to have a right to that water, and it's a historic water right, and you have to have a use that the state has deemed valid. And so water's our biggest problem. There's multiple demands competing for that water, whether it's agriculture, whether it's development. And then habitat, and habitat's kind of at the end, right? Like, all these other uses get their water first, because... Ducks versus real estate developers. Ducks versus real estate developers. And it's finding that balance. We've got to find that balance, because the Great Salt Lake's eight or nine feet below average. And eight mm. or nine feet doesn't sound like a lot, but it equates to miles of shoreline. So, like, mm-hmm. you asked me what's changed since I grew up. There was a spot I grew up hunting... And it was a pond that kind of backed the Great Salt Lake. At the time, it was probably within about a mile of the Great Salt Lake shoreline. If you went out there today, the shoreline for the Great Salt Lake is about five miles from that spot. Hmm, so it is pushed back. Yeah, it's only eight feet deep, but it's pushed back five miles. And what, what's tight? Is it just dry all the time? So we're in a drought period, and part of it is that drought, and part of it is water use. 80% of our water that falls and that would normally make it to the Great Salt Lake, if people weren't here, it gets pulled out for ag and development. So it's getting mm-hmm. used by other uses. So you got to figure that's a lot of water compared to the 20% that actually makes it to that lake. Mm-hmm. And that lake, even though it's super saline and when you think of a salty body of water, you don't really think of ducks, those green wing till, we have a huge overwintering population of green wings that use the brine shrimp and the brine shrimp eggs. And that's their primary food source. We have one of the largest inland wintering populations of common goldmine on the western side of that lake oh so it's this is an incredibly important area of habitat 
that if we lose this, it's going to disturb the whole Pacific Flyway. The whole Pacific Flyway, 11 states worth. That's incredible. That is utterly incredible. What up? Getting back, getting back to some of your own personal hunting. You, I know you're from Utah, but you spent some time down in Nevada. Did you do any duck hunting down there? Or did I, I did. So yeah, I was a game warden in Southern Nevada for four and a half years. So after I, I started out hunting here. When I lost my pond, that was kind of the time in my life where I decided I wanted to do something about habitat loss and do something in conservation. So I went to Utah State and got my degree in wildlife science. Um, graduated in 2012. I needed to find a job, and Nevada had game warden openings, and I'd always thought that could be a fun job when I was a little kid yeah. growing up, right? Like, it's it's one of those jobs where you're like, that would be so cool to talk to hunters every day and spend all your time outside, right? <laughs> and uh, so I took a job in southern Nevada based out of Vegas as a game warden, and yeah, there's... I didn't think... I thought when I made that move and moved to southern Nevada, I'm like, there goes my waterfowl hunting days, right? I'm going to have to travel home to shoot ducks. And I got down there, and I couldn't believe that there's ducks in the desert in that dry place. Within an hour and a half, I could shoot ducks in three or four spots. Wow. And not just a couple of ducks. I had pretty good shoots. What was the what was the prevalent species? It was a mixed bag. So it's a lot of the Great Basin species. So we'd have a lot of widgeon, mallards, green wing tills, cinnamon till, canvas backs, red heads. It was, you could go down and a little bit of everything. Everything. I know they got cinnamon till, I've heard. And that's a that's a big species of... Uh, when you get outside of this part of the world where they're common, you get outside the Pacific Flyway, everybody's got this thing for those little red birds. And you see them up here this time of year, they look like spring, uh, fall blue wings. You know, there's nothing special about them right now. Yeah, they're pretty brown right now. They get a little red. About this time of year, you'll start seeing some red ones come by, but there's still a lot of brown birds. And then, and then through your, your conservation interest, you found a chance to come back to work for Ducks Unlimited, move back up here home. And, uh, and and start doing good things for up here. I did, yeah. I'd always wanted to work for DU when I was going to school. Um, and there was a great opportunity to... I took a job where I get to work with our great donors and our philanthropists that really care about doing conservation work and protecting habitat. And they care about the same things that I care about, right? The same... I grew up wanting to protect and make sure that that habitat was there for my kids to shoot ducks on. And they have those same interests. And I get to work with them and talk to them and talk about the work DU is doing. And it's a dream job. I get to meet people that have been highly successful in business or real estate or doctors, lawyers, that have have the means to really make a difference and make a huge impact. Right. You know, that that's one thing that uh, I learned very quickly when I came here uh, to the Great Basin, the Great Salt Lake area to hunt is – the reason that a lot of the wetlands are still intact is because, especially private landowners that, that have bought land and become major stakeholders, and their interest to shoot ducks and have quality hunting habitat, they locked this property up in the 19th century, and they fought tooth and nail to, to keep it in ideal habitat. And uh, that that was just the most amazing story to me. You know, we always talk about hunters or conservationists, and we're footing the bill for this thing, man. Look, you know, uh, all the bird watchers out there riding around the local refuge can thank us hunters for, for throwing money into the ducks uh, via via your organization or, or, or whatever. And, uh, but man, that's really digging deep when you've got that level of participation to, to, to produce quality habitat 
And, and you know, uh, I had visited a camp nearby that, wow, they have got some of the most amazing waterfowl habitat. They put a lot of time and money into that habitat. And they hunt 60 days. That means for 305 days, the whole region benefits from what they're doing. That That is true hunter conservationist. Wouldn't you agree? I would totally agree. And a lot of it started, as you said, back in the 19th century. Our, the first duck clubs along the Great Salt Lake happened in the late 1800s, 1886. Yeah. Um, and it they did. They they wanted to make sure that that land was safe from development. And it is. Because they were looking at the time to drain a lot of wetlands, drain a lot of the habitat on the eastern shore and use it for farming, use it for development. And luckily, we protected a lot of habitat in the beginning. The state protected 100,000 acres between the state and the feds. The private duck clubs protected tens of thousands of more acres. This place is incredible because it is relatively intact. Yeah, we have huge threats from our water. Our water is by far the biggest threat to us right now. But we have the land that's secured as long as we got the water to put on it. Right. What What do you What do you see is some of the biggest threshold to conservation moving forward in the future? What What do you? Cause I mean, it, it, you know. I'm also a wildlife major, and and I find myself sometimes thankful that I'm not working directly in the field, but because because it's not just uh, boy, wouldn't it be nice if you could just go out and manage habitat for duck? But there's so many things. I mean, just just in your your conversation, we're not talking about uh, just water. We're talking about for ducks. We're talking about water for real estate development. We're talking about talking about land, marshland to put subdivisions on. We're talking about all kinds of interest. But 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 you personally, uh, what what do you see? What do you see your kids facing? Where do you see your kids being in twenty years or forty years? I hope my kids are still hunting here, hunting ducks where I grew up hunting. Man, I love this place. There's no place like it in North America, in my opinion. It's I was spoiled growing up, so I hope that they're here hunting the same places. But really, if we the biggest threat, man, it's that water policy. We have to have good water policy that balances all of those challenges that you just mentioned. The development balances agriculture, balances habitat, balances getting water to the actual Great Salt Lake so that that lake can maybe come up a little bit and not be five miles from that pond because those ducks jump between that lake and our freshwater sure. marsh. So it's it's that. Those are our, that is our challenge, and it's it's not going to be solved tomorrow. It's a long-term challenge that we got to work on. And DU's looking to put a million dollars into Utah over the next five years and hire a policy person that can specialize in working with our legislature and working with the different stakeholders, the duck clubs, working with the developers, working with the ski industry, because believe it or not, that lake has an impact on our skiing in the mountains. Whether it's the dust that blows off of it and increases snow melt or it's lake effect snow that comes off of that. So there's all these stakeholders that rely on that lake. There's the mineral extraction, and there's industry based around that lake. And we've all got, everybody in this region has a stake in that lake being healthy. And that is our Everybody in North America's got a vested interest in it just simply from healthy waterfowl populations. If you're a duck hunter, especially like me, (laughs) you know, for sure. That's a, I read somewhere there's enough water. If, if everybody will just kind of share it equitably and stuff like that, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it's, it's a manageable solution if everybody will just work together instead of at odds with each other. Is that We've right? all got to work together to solve our problem. And it's, 
it's a problem that needs addressed and it does need that collaborative effort where we all sit down in a room and talk about what the needs are because there's health impacts from that lake with the dust plumes that come off of it and all the heavy metals that have sit in the bottom of it. It's been, it's the lowest point in this basin and it has collected all the heavy metals that have run down our streams, all the stuff that's been dumped in it over the years. It's, it impacts everybody and we have got to sit down and come up with a way to get water, to make sure that everybody's got water and we're being as efficient with the water as we can be. That we're not wasting water by bad ag, bad ag practices. That we're not wasting water with development and doing different. That we can develop it differently to conserve water. Yeah, it's a water conservation problem. Here. You know, coming from the deep south, where you're right, we had a ton of water. I mean, it it was an epic. Noah built an ark type flooding situation this year. It's hard to get your mind wrapped around water issues out west, and you think, well, it'll always be there. It's a great salt lake. How can it ever go away? We, we actually do a, I've been hunting down in uh, Baja, California, where there used to be a vibrant river called the Colorado River. It, it, it started uh, up around Hoover Dam and, and ran clear down to, uh, down into Mexico, into the Sea of Cortez, and it's just a dry gulch now. It can happen. Mm-hmm. It can happen. And yeah, I've got, I've got a dear friend and one of DU's big donors that he grew up hunting, well, didn't grow up. He spent a lot of time in his adult life hunting the Sea of Cortez and hunting that before it turned into that dry area wow. that you described. And he, that's his area of interest and where he's passionate about. And it's cool to hear the stories of the pintail numbers that were down there and the duck numbers that used that place. So it can happen, and we've got to make a difference before it gets to that point. Mm-hmm. What, it doesn't take just major donor to participate in Ducks Unlimited and make a meaningful difference for waterfowl anywhere, does it? No, it doesn't. We have 4,000 events or more across the nation. We have 60,000 DU volunteers. Our volunteers put a lot of time, effort, and energy into putting on these events. Um, our membership numbers are huge. That's what gives us our tooth within our policy realm, right? If we If we can go into the legislature, whether it's the state or the feds, and talk about our membership numbers, we can go to the federal legislature and go, we have 725,000 members. That's a big number, right? That makes them take notice, right? It gives it political political relevance. It does. It does. And those membership numbers are generated through our mailers that go to the duck hunters. They're generated through every person that attends a DU dinner. You become a member. And so, yeah, it, everybody can help DU by either volunteering, going to a DU dinner. And if you have the means, become a DU major donor. It's Every little piece of that makes a difference. And collectively, we can make a big difference together. Collectively. And that, that's, the whole, that's, the whole, that's a good point to end on is collectively all of us duck hunters can – Agree on something, if not everything. We can agree on something. We can agree on conservation and, and, and uh, giving back to the ducks as well as taking. Jessup, I appreciate you jumping in here today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for showing up. It was good to meet you. And uh, we're gonna have a lot. Of, we're gonna have a lot of fun this evening. We're gonna we're gonna cook some duck poppers and cook some ribeyes and just have a good time. Thank you, Jessup. Thank you, guys. Y'all ought to check out at Ramsey Russell Get Ducks and see the timeline and see the pictures of this incredible part of the world here in utah it, it, it is if somebody's been all over the world i'm telling you it's been one of the most amazing uh experiences of my entire duck hunting career is just to come up here and spend some time with these guys and see what they've got thank y'all for listening